Well, good morning. That's really loud. Um, welcome to Potomac Hills. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, normally, I'd be dismissing our giant gaggle of three through six-year-olds. Uh, there were a lot last week, 18 in uh, Children's Church last week. So uh, please do volunteer for Children's Church. We need uh, all the help that we can get. Uh, but since our children are staying with us this morning to learn about Jesus, let us quickly go over our class rules. And uh, these class rules also apply to you adults as well. So please do listen up. So our first rule is calm body. So don't be touching other people. Try not to like get too exuberant or anything crazy like that. Our second rule is be ready to listen, which means children, that you're keeping your mouth shut, right? And also that you're paying attention to me so that you can listen well. And that goes in with our third uh, rule, which is to be ready to learn, which means that we're thinking about God's word and we're listening to learn about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And then lastly, be ready to love. And we do that by uh, respecting each other, uh, not getting in their way of listening to the Lord. And so uh, sometimes, you know, husbands and wives elbow each other and stuff like that. Let's keep that to a minimum, right? Calm body, of course, all of that, but also that we would pay attention to uh, the Lord and his gospel. So now that we've uh, gone over our class rules uh, this morning, let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. And as Dave said, we're going to be going a little bit out of order to finish up our series this morning, but hopefully we'll be able to keep up. Uh, I'll be saving some time by reading as uh, we go and summarizing some as well. So let's uh, start our time by coming before the Lord in prayer. <laughs> Father God, we are often a distracted bunch. We might be thinking about lunch or work or any of a million different cares or worries. We pray that you would focus our attention upon you, that you would focus our attention upon your word. Show us our sin and your gospel, and most of all, Lord, show us Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about unity a lot. Uh, unity is hard to come by in this life. Uh, conflict is everywhere, and we probably see conflict the most in our own family. Uh, we're a bunch of sinners that are stuck together all the time, and we, our love for one another can actually make sort of small things big things. And so I want to take you back to 2004. I was getting ready to set, uh, getting set to graduate from high school, and I set my paperwork to go, in, uh, to, go to Penn State. Uh, where I had been accepted because I'd actually gotten rejected or waitlisted at all the other schools that I applied to. And so uh, I wasn't actually particularly happy to go to this uh, school, but there I was going to the school. And toward the end of the year, I was uh, planning on staying late to help with uh, audition, the audition process for the show choir that I had been a part of uh, for three years in high school. And uh, it, I was, it was going to be like 7, 8, 9 o'clock, something like that, before I would be headed home. And so I had worked out with my parents ahead of time, hey, mom, dad, I'm going to get a ride home from one of my friends uh, in the neighborhood. And right in the middle of sort of this audition process, as I'm teaching kids music and dance moves and all of that, my dad walks into the auditorium, and I'm just hot. I'm livid. 
And why? Because he hadn't listened to me. And I was thinking, like, what are you, what are you doing here, Dad? I, I told you I'd get a ride home. Why didn't you listen to me? You never listened to me. And besides, I'm not going to be done for like another hour. I've got stuff to do. Just go home and I'm going to like get a ride. And he abruptly, abruptly cuts me off in the middle of, of my sort of tirade right there. And he says, you don't understand. Princeton called. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, well, I guess I'm going home right now. So all you guys see you later, I'm hopping in the car. And I promptly gathered all of my stuff, uh, hopped in the car, and went home. And I had been dreaming of going to Princeton for years since I had gone on a, on a uh, sort of college visit with my brother four years before. And so this was my dream school, and I got waitlisted. And there was no reason for Princeton to call unless I was getting off of the waitlist. And so I just simply didn't understand why my father had showed up and why he had sort of not stuck to the plan. And on the way home, I had to apologize to my dad for biting his head off and for being a jerk and thank him for coming to get me. And so what does this have to do with unity? You see, my parents and I were united in the plan before the day began. We had that agreement or a covenant, if you would, that I get a ride home. But that unity disintegrated as I saw my dad come down the aisle at school. But it wasn't until my dad's purpose was revealed that we were reconciled later, of course, in the car. And there was a lot of celebration later that night as I received, finally received that call from Princeton to hear the news that I had been accepted. And you see, my misunderstanding and my reconciliation mirrors that of Joshua chapter 22. And so we're going to be breaking this passage into three sections. The first section, verses 1 through 9, is the plan to go home. And then uh, the second section, verses 10 through 20, is the section where the Israelites and I ask, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And then the third section, verses 22 through 34, is the reconciliation. And as we go, we're going to be seeing, or we're going to be see, we're going to see that unity among among Israel is based on their love for the Lord. And then hopefully, we're going to see that Christ through the gospel enables us to have a fuller unity. So let's dive right in. Reading verses one through nine. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh and said to them, "You have kept all that the." All that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, for Moses, the son of the Lord, uh, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the son of, uh, not the son of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to uh, love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. And then verses 7 to 9 basically deal with the half tribe of Manasseh dividing the spoils of war with the other half. Uh, tribe living in the promised land, and the eastern tribes returning home with their portion of the spoils, which was a lot. And so, what do we get? 
the plan was for the fighting men of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh to go back to their lands east of the Jordan. And remember, these two and a half tribes were allowed to settle in the lands east of the Jordan on the condition that all of their fighting men would fight alongside of their brothers to conquer the promised land. And so these verses are all really good. These nine verses are basically Joshua praising and blessing these warriors for their faithful obedience to the Lord to fight alongside their brothers. They had been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God, as verse 3 puts it. And they're going home, wealthy, receiving their due portion of the spoils of war. But note that there's a charge given to them. That it's not just, oh, you did a good job, but there, there is a command given to them as they head home. And that's verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And so as Joshua sends them off, he sends them off with a command to obey the Lord. But it goes deeper than simple obedience. The five infinitives, there are five infinitives that follow that command, that show that Joshua has a wholehearted devotion to the Lord in mind. One that encompasses every facet of the people's identities. And so listen to them. To love the Lord your God to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so Joshua didn't want the tribes to lose their faithful, wholehearted devotion to the Lord now that the promised land had been conquered. And he really didn't want them to get complacent once they got home. And so the plan was for everyone to stay wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. But as we expect... And because of my story earlier, the plan didn't seem to get followed. And so let's keep reading in verses 10 through 20. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in uh, the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of, of Israel, each one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? And for which we have... There, have came, there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord this day, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of the Lord. But now, 
If the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Do only do not rebel against the Lord or make us re- make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon the con- all the congregation of Israel? And did he not perish alone for his iniquity? Well, so much for sticking to the plan. On their way home, the eastern tribes built an altar of imposing size. They built it so big that it was clearly meant to last, and this was a big deal. This looked like a rival place of worship, which God had explicitly forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 12. There was to be only one true place of worship, and that place was currently in the tabernacle at Shiloh. It looked remarkably like these two and a half tribes were abandoning their covenant with the Lord and openly uh, rebelling against him. And the rest of Israel reacted predictably. Did you see in verse 12 what they're getting ready to do? They're gathered to make war. But before they could clobber each other, the people sent a delegation to call their seemingly wayward brothers to repentance. And it consisted of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, and ten elders from each of the other tribes. And this delegation spoke strongly and bluntly, as I did to my father, and said, What are you doing? Why are you turning away from God by building this by building this rival altar. Why are you in rebellion? Didn't you learn anything from our experiences with the Lord and the conquest? And there are, in this section, there are two instances of sin that are explicitly named. The sin at Peor and the sin of Achan. In both instances, individuals in the community sinned, but the whole group received the consequences. At Peor, uh, women of Moab seduced men of Israel. And the resulting plague, which was God's judgment upon the people, killed 24,000 people. And so that's a really big deal. And it only ended when Phineas, yes, the same Phineas, stepped in and killed two of the offenders. And you can read the account in Numbers 25, 1 through 9. It's pretty shocking and amazing. And then with Achan in Joshua chapter 7, because Achan sinned by taking some of the devoted things from uh, Jericho in chapter 6, what happens to Israel in their next battle? In their battle against Ivan, and many lives are lost. And then Achan and his whole family are destroyed as a result of Achan's sin. And a great heaping mound of rocks is laid there in remembrance of their sin. Not unlike the just giant altar that has just been constructed. And so basically the delegation was reminding these two and a half tribes how things usually go when Israel sins against the Lord. And rule of thumb, you sin against the Lord, it generally doesn't go well for you. And so they're super upset, just as I was with my dad. Why? Because they haven't stuck to the plan. They haven't stuck to that commandment in chapter 5. Didn't they learn anything over the last 50 years? Over the conquest, over seeing these, these sins and how they are dealt with? But it's not just that the western tribes are on the firing line alongside the eastern tribes. 
at the core of their issue is the wholehearted devotion to the Lord that Joshua spoke of in, in verse 5. The other tribes love the Lord, and they love these brothers. They want to live in obedience and faithfulness, and they want the same for their kinsmen. Did you notice that the other ten uh, tribes offered to give up some of their own inheritance, some of their own land, if the two and a half tribes to the east thought their land was unclean? They were willing to sacrifice some of their own livelihood for their brothers. And that's love. That's unity based on the covenant. They were seeing what they thought was sin and their love for the Lord and their love for their brothers required them to do something about them, to reach out, to call them to repentance. And to not just call them to repentance and just sort of say, stop doing this, but say also, what can I do to help as well? And so this is what unity looks like in the covenant. It's active and it pursues. And again, it rests on their mutual commitment to the Lord. These are brothers that we don't want to just throw away, even when they sin. Why? Because they're part of our covenantal family. They're one of us. And God loves them desperately and deeply, and so we do too. But this also means that we come at them pretty strongly because faithfulness to God was at stake. And thankfully, the Eastern tribes have a good answer for the what are you doing question. And so look with me at the last section, verses 21 through 34. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in, in answer to the heads of the uh, families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from, the, from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. But we did it, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children may say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a, a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children may make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the Lord, the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be in witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God, which stands before his tabernacle. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the, of the congregation and the heads of the family of Israel who were with him heard the words of the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today 
we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And then verses 32 through 34 cover the delegation's report back to Israel whose reaction mirrored the delegations. Oh, you can almost hear this, the sort of sigh of relief and the sort of reorientation of what's going on at this, when this new information comes to life, which really just changes everything, right? The altar wasn't meant to rival the one in Shiloh, but was rather meant to be yet another monument of remembrance. And why? Because the Jordan River is a big physical wall between the tribes, but it wasn't just this sort of big river. It was also a big spiritual boundary that marked whether you were in God's land, as it's called in verse 19, or if you're outside of God's land. And remember, these two and a half tribes had settled in the east, that they were not in what was, quote unquote, the promised land. And so the eastern tribes were worried that their recent obedience, their faithfulness, and their devotion would be soon forgotten that they would be excluded from the covenant, that they would no longer be able to worship the Lord. And they wanted to make sure that their portion in the covenant would remain for as long as the altar stood, stood as a witness to their rights and to their inclusion in the covenant. But did you notice what was the first thing that the Israelites, or the Eastern tribes, said? What was the first thing that they said? They started off with a strong confession of faith and agreement that judgment ought to come down upon them if they were acting in rebellion or breach of faith. And they affirmed, God, the mighty one, God, the mighty one. They repeat it for emphasis. Why? Because that is their confession. They are saying, no, we are together in this. We are together in the Lord. Yes, everything you said about God, rebellion, and sin, and judgment is right, and we agree. They first established that they were united in their desire to serve the Lord, and it's only after that affirmation that the Eastern tribes explain themselves and their intentions. You see, the question of what you were, what are you doing, right from the last section, assumes that the Eastern tribes have renounced the covenant. But actually, the Eastern tribes were reaffirming and memorializing their commitment to the Lord. Their apparent rejection was, in fact, a symbol of deep commitment. And isn't it interesting what Phineas says in verse 30 in response? He said, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And so the question was whether God was present with these eastern tribes or whether they had renounced him. God's presence with them had been really the key throughout the book of Joshua. And God's presence demands wholehearted devotion to him. And it always gets it. Once the eastern tribes clarified that they were indeed being faithful, everyone could breathe a sigh of relief. God was still with them and their brethren. And so we see reconciliation because their fundamental unity in, in God was revealed. But unfortunately, this unity doesn't really last very long. You see, within a generation, as we get out of the book of Joshua, what happens? They turn from the Lord. 
and especially those eastern tribes who weren't in the Lord's land, they are quickly influenced by their pagan neighbors into embracing idolatry and sin. And so in the end, this great big altar that was supposed to be a symbol of faithfulness, obedience, and love to the Lord turns out to be an empty symbol. It turns out to be a symbol of a devotion that is long gone. And the Western tribes really can't say much either about it. Why? Because they too turn away from the Lord. And so as we look at these last few chapters in Joshua over these next few weeks, the text really does sort of ask the implicit question of what's going to happen in the future. What's going to happen after Joshua? What's going to happen after God is done sort of routinely displaying his mighty hand on behalf of his people? What's going to happen when sort of mighty, amazing, eventful, miracle-filled life becomes mundane, normal life? The implicitly, implicitly asks if Israel will remain faithful going forward. That verse 5, right? Only be very careful to obey and keep all of the Lord's commandments, is going to be sort of the refrain that we hear moving forward. And that's the big question. And Israel's history gives, our, gives us our answer. And the answer is an emphatic and big, no, they won't. Human commitment isn't going to be enough to keep us devoted to the Lord. What we need is to be so completely changed that we are his forever. It's not enough for us to just sort of see his great works but we need to have those great works done to us, in us, to make us new. We need to be transformed by his grace and his power so that we can't fall away, that we can't do what these, these Israelites do. And thank God, because he does just that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus took all of our sinfulness, our unfaithfulness, and our lack of devotion, and he puts it to death. But we get something, too. It's not just that Jesus takes from us, but that we receive something, too. And this is how the gospel works. We get all of his righteousness. We get all of his faithfulness. We get all of his obedience, and we get all of his devotion to the Lord. In short, because Christ loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, strength, we can say that we have done the same. Since we are united in Christ, not only does he take all that we have, but we get to take all that Christ has as well. And that's our gospel hope, that through Jesus, we will be able to say that we have kept that commandment in verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In Christ, that is true of Christians. Praise God. And so why do we care? Why do we care? This is the, the gospel has been done. The Lord has applied that to us. But how does this change our lives? You see, our fundamental posture in Christ is one of loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what does that actually mean? What does that look like? You see, a, a mentor of mine 
once told me that this meant that we love the things that the Lord loves in the order that he loves them. That, that our priorities would reflect his priorities. And right at the top of God's list of things that he loves are the lost and the lost that he has already saved, which is the church. And that has massive implications for Christians. You see, the gospel enables us to love the lost because that was who we were before grace happened. Christians can't stand up and say that we're just sort of better than everybody else. Why? Because we need the same grace as everyone else. And so grace becomes the great unifier. Remember, we were talking about unity this morning. Grace becomes the great unifier between Christians and non-Christians. Grace becomes the way that we engage the world and make disciples. If you were here this morning at Sunday school, you would have seen a video that Mosaic Pregnancy Center um, uh, sort of showed about sort of what it looks like to engage people that come in. And it was this lady that had come in, one of their clients, that was facing a, a crisis pregnancy. And when she came in, she said she never felt pressure, one way or the other, but that she felt met and known and loved and supported no matter what she decided. And so what she saw there was she saw that she didn't see any judgment that she had gotten pregnant. She didn't see any judgment that she was in crisis. She didn't see any judgment that she had sinned in, any, in, 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 in this way. Well, what did she see? She saw grace from those people that were there to meet her. She saw grace and love of Christ that said, I love you in spite of your sin, and we are here to be with you, to, to see you and to be with you. Do you see how that grace enables us to reach out to people without judgment? Do you see that grace enables us to love people right where they are, just as Christ loved us while we were in our sin? And beyond that, we live in a highly polarized world. It's so easy to look around and be self-righteous. How could they possibly think that? They're so dumb if they think that, or if they vote for that person. How could they possibly do that? But grace and the gospel make us passionate about loving people that are wildly different from us. Why? Because Christ loves them. Christ isn't out to argue. He's not out to score points in debates. Even when he does speak truth, he does so while exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. And what are they? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right? None of that means that you're a jerk. Gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, patience, love, self-control. Those are things that enable us to love people right where they are to exhibit Christ to them as we look at them and deal with them and come alongside them. And so Christ is out there to love the lost, people that are, people that are out there that aren't us, so to speak, to love them right where they are in the midst of their wrongness and brokenness. And in the end, the gospel enables Christians to be real agents of change in the world because we're concerned with meeting people where they are and showing them Christ through our grace, humility, and love. And so really what we're doing when we go out to evangelize, when we go out to minister, is we're embodying Christ to folks who will never see Jesus apart from Jesus living within me. 
the gospel enables us to also love the church as well. Enables us to love our brothers and sisters far more deeply than I think that we actually do. You see, that that whole loving the Lord with our everything means that we love those whom whom Christ loved with our everything as well. All that means that it means that all those that Christ love, we love too. The Bible acknowledges that there are a lot of dividing walls of hostility, as Ephesians 2 puts it. There are a lot, there's a lot of things that divide us, even as Christians. The Israelites were afraid that the Jordan would be born. And there are any number of issues within the church that can be dividing walls of hostility. The types of music that we sing. The convictions that we have about whether or not we should have a building or not. The COVID vaccine, are you going to get vaccinated or not? Masks, should we wear one or not? Politics. Politics, right? Stances on race, race relations, how we engage in race relations. And all of these issues are important, and some are really important. But at the end of the day, when you look at that person across from you as you're talking to them, what should you see? You should see Christ. You should see that Christ died for that person over there that you disagree with on whatever. And what they say and believe may make my blood boil. And I might have to bite my tongue really hard to say something from being, to avoid being snarky. But in the end, Christ died for them. He loved them far more than I could possibly imagine. And because of that, I'm to love them with my everything and beyond. All because that's the way Christ loves them. I'm to pursue them in love, kindness, gentleness, and faithfulness. I'm not to give up on them, but I'm to be relentless in pursuit of them for the sake of Christ. That's the picture of Christian unity that the Bible gives us. As we look around the room, does that describe Potomac Hills? Probably not. Because we're a big pack of sinners. But it's something that we ought to aspire to. And if we were to sum up all that was said today, it would be this. Do we love God enough to love the people that are broken around us like he loves them and like he loves us? Because that's the same love that we've already received in Christ Jesus. And so let us show people Jesus by loving them like he has loved us. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we are sinful. That we do not love our brothers and sisters near as much as we ought to. Lord, give us a zeal to chase after our brothers and sisters in righteousness, in faithfulness, in gentleness. That we would be willing to sacrifice as the Western tribes were willing to sacrifice for their Eastern brothers. Lord, make us love each other so much that we would do anything for that. Lord, we pray that it wouldn't just be our love, but it would be your love, that we would love you so much and that we would see our brothers and sisters as folks that you love. Let us see the lost as people that you love. Open our eyes to see as you see, to love as you love, and to make us 
wholeheartedly devoted to you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray. Pray this in Jesus' holy and matchless name. Amen.